Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence at BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, will Rob Califf's reform of the FDA Advisory Committee process be a success? A conversation with Polaris Partners' Amy Shulman and more fallout from the approval and coming reimbursement issues for Sarepta's DMD gene therapy. Steve, going to come to you first. The need to reform FDA's advisory committees has been a topic of discussion for years. Is this something that's actually going to happen this time? Well, it's anybody's bet. The interesting thing is that Rob Califf has been talking about it a lot. He has said that, you know, watch the space, that something is, is going to happen soon. When I contacted his people last week and asked, for more details on the process around it. And when I spoke with senior people at FDA off the record about it, uh, they said that the initiative is being led by the commissioner's office. It's not clear that there's gonna be one big bang announcement. It may be that there'll be steps that will be announced over time. And when Rob Caleb talked about it at the uh, bio meeting recently, he said that there are disagreements among the center directors and he implied that the kind of rollout of the uh, reforms are going to have to wait until there's more consensus uh, around some of those issues. He didn't specifically say what the lack of consensus is about. I know that one of the issues that's been talked about is differing views on voting at advisory committee meetings on whether they should routinely, whether FDA should routinely ask advisory committees to vote for example, on whether um, products uh, should be approved or not. There's a couple of different schools of thought about that. Uh, there are a lot of people in the industry, and I think at, uh, at Bio, which has been engaging with FDA on this topic, who believe that votes are largely superfluous, that they are asking advisors who know a lot about, hopefully a lot about the topics that they're giving advice about, but aren't experts on the regulatory issues, they haven't spent weeks or months pouring over the data like FDA has, and they believe that it's inappropriate to ask those advisors to make up or down votes about uh, whether something should be approved or not. Rob Califf seems to be sympathetic to that idea. He says that the most important thing at the advisory committee meetings is the discussion and not um, the actual vote and that it distracts attention. Uh, from I think it's probably worth your sort of outlining you might have what the harm is. You've probably got listeners thinking, why not have a vote? What what harm does it do? So maybe outline that. Yeah. So so what some people think the harm is is that then it puts FDA in a box, right? They either have to agree with the advisory committee, or if they disagree, then they're accused of uh, going against science or having a political agenda or something like that. Well, it, hey, it also take raises the, it raises the home. Take the Adieu home um, example where. I think most of the community agreed with the advisory committee that sort of gave a thumbs down, a fairly unanimous, all but all, almost unanimous thumbs down, and then FDA overruled that. So if you didn't have that kind of a vote, do you think you would still, from FDA's actions, be able to understand the degree to which they had gone against well, I, I, the I advisory think that, committee was? So, so that's one of the arguments for... Um, having the votes. And there are people who feel strongly that you need to have those votes because especially people on the committees tend to be academics. They may be uh, saying things that are like uh, devil's advocate kind of things or wandering around and you want to have some clarity. 
I think, though, that the Adjuhelm thing is an example, though, of how advisory committees are misused or they're not, FDA is not getting the kind of advice that it should be getting. The point is not whether they should have had a thumbs up or a thumbs down on Adjuhelm. The real point is should FDA have used the endpoint that they used as an approvable endpoint for any drug for Alzheimer's? And that's a discussion, in my view, that they should have gotten a lot of scientific advice from about, they should have developed a consensus about, and it should have been done long before any particular product came to the FDA. They knew a year in advance, even two years in advance, that this was an endpoint that had been discussed by companies. It's an endpoint that had been discussed in the scientific community. There was a lack of consensus around it. The real reason to have advisors come in is, is not to serve as a kind of check on FDA's um, decision-making, I think. It's really to provide the kind of advice that's needed to generate consensus and clarity around issues where there's uncertainty. And the endpoints that are used for approving Alzheimer drugs are a perfect example of the kind of thing that should have had a thoughtful debate in public and a public conclusion about it. I think that advisory committees are not necessarily the best tool for doing that. You could look at the kinds of meetings that the Duke Margolis Center has, that Friends of Cancer Research has, where they have workshops and symposia, they develop white papers, they develop consensus positions. FDA is there along with a mix of some of the key experts from industry and from academia and critically from the patient communities and from the patient advocacy communities. That's the kind of thing that's needed more. I wrote a commentary about this a couple of years ago where I said that there's only three things wrong with the advisory committees. They're the wrong people on the committees, the meetings are held at the wrong times, and they ask them the wrong questions. Other than that, they're great, right? So I think that to be successful, if this reform is successful, it won't only be about the procedures for advisory committees. It'll be about creating a much broader system for FDA to solicit and receive external advice from um, leading experts in the um, scientific community, the medical community, and the patient community. Steve, is there any, are you aware of any specific topics within the advisory committee process where there is consensus at FDA that something does need to change or, yeah, or as to what that change would be? Yeah, it's around the conflict of interest rules or the interpretation of the conflict of interest rules. All of the senior people at FDA say that it's far too difficult to get the experts that they need, especially for rare diseases. And um, that's a, a very large percentage of, of FDA's agenda these days. Very often, all or nearly all of the expert leading experts in a particular disease, a rare disease, especially um, an ultra rare disease, have participated in clinical trials or have consulted for companies that are developing drugs. And that makes it difficult, in some cases impossible to get them onto advisory committees. So I think that there's a, a real sense that they need to have more flexibility. And again, I think going away from the formal advisory committees and going more to workshops and symposia where they can get this expertise would be um, one of the ways to do it. Uh, I quote in the story that I wrote that uh, Peter Mark said that sometimes coming up with the roster for advisory committee meetings is really just figuring out who it is who might be qualified, who isn't um, ruled out because of the conflict of interest requirements. In other words, people get on there you know, by default, not because they're the people that FDA really wants to have on there. 
So, Steve, I mean, I think that's so important, and I'm not going to say anything about other structures in this country where conflict of interest is coming up as a as a burning issue. But um, you know, is that something then? It really does seem to be a roadblock at FDA. So maybe you can talk about the likelihood of that. I don't know if you're going to talk about the likelihood of any of the other changes happening. Does consensus, fair consensus mean it's likely to happen? I think that they're likely to come up with something, okay? I think that, the, like I said, the obvious way to do it is to take some of these discussions outside of the context of a formal advisory committee. And again, then that would probably mean not having votes. Another will be wider use of the waivers that they have for conflict of interest and coming up with ways to persuade the public and critics that they're not losing their integrity right. um, yeah. when they do I, that. I mean, I think that's going to be the flashpoint. So I think people inside the industry and at FDA will understand that in this case, loosening up conflict of interest will actually provide you with a better outcome, with better quality, more people, more diverse Voices. I don't mean that in a in an ethnic or a gender sense. I just mean in voices with more different types of experience, including farmer experience. And the challenge will then be to persuade the public that that's a better outcome. And and again, that's one of the arguments for having fewer votes on these committees, because I think that concerns about conflict of interest of somebody expressing their opinions, if you know where they're coming from, and who they've consulted for and what trials they've been involved with and so on, you can judge whether that colors their opinion or not in a way that's much more difficult to do if they're making a binary vote on something. On the other hand, getting back to the voting issue, what a very senior person at FDA told me is, look, when you listen to one of these advisory committees, uh, if there isn't a vote, then you can take away from it whatever it is that you want to hear because there's a range of opinions expressed the same individual may express two or three different um, even opposing opinions over the course of an advisory committee meeting. And if you don't have a vote to clarify it, then you're losing that sense of clarity that you hope to get for from it. So just want to say, though, there's something aspirational there, because, you know, we've seen recently EMA and FDA look at very similar packages and draw opposite conclusions. So, you know, I, I don't know that there is this sort of purity of science that once you've got this data and you discuss it, there's only one outcome. I, I think that that is sort of built in to the, the business that we're in. Yeah, no, I agree. And to their credit, what these advisory committees do when they are at their best is they expose the public and the scientific community to all of the nuance that goes into these decisions. Look, if they were, if it was obvious, I wouldn't need them. You wouldn't have an advisory <laughs> committee meeting. You just do whatever it is that's obvious. The only reason to have advisory committee meetings and to seek this advice is because either because it isn't obvious or because uh, the agency feels that it's necessary to educate the public to, to get things out there, even if they do think that they're obvious. Really interesting. A lot of stuff that I'm sure will be coming out on this uh, going forward, Steve. So appreciate you covering that for us here. Simone, now I wanted to turn to you because you had a chance to sit down and chat with Polaris Partners' Amy Shulman. Can you share with us what the highlights from that conversation were? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Um, it was a great conversation with Amy Shulman. It'll be available later this week. You'll give the details of that afterwards, but I do encourage people to listen. Amy Shulman is managing partner, as you said, at Polaris. She's an incredibly interesting and energetic person. 
And there's some bits that I won't be able to get to in this little synopsis. But starting with this, one thing that is perhaps unexpected and very interesting is the play that Polaris has in Singapore. Now, Singapore is a region that by a century is increasingly interested in. The government there is trying to make a play, even obviously beyond biotech, for Singapore to be a sort of neutral player in what they call the geopolitical shifting landscape. I think for that, you can read more like a gateway to Asia. There's a lot going on. So I asked Amy why, you know, that they're a leader pretty rare among blue blood Western VCs. Why are they looking at Singapore? And uh, she said, Singapore, she used the word Singapore is small but mighty. She said, she said it's an extraordinary ecosystem. It is positioning itself as a portal to Asia. But she said that understates its potential impact on the biotech environment. She talked about the commitment that the government there has made to innovation and the fact that there's a large amount of academic science. But she talked about a few other things, like she talked about what she quote unquote said, a real respect for intellectual property and not just data integrity, but predictability in terms of timelines, administrative processes. And, you know, I said to her, Singapore's only got 5 million people. It's obviously not for the market. She said, yes, if we were building companies just to stay in Singapore, that would be a fool's errand. But she sees it as a um, gateway to many of the markets in that region, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, maybe China, and also to the US and Europe. And I liked what she said. She said, I mean, we don't need to be provincial about where science starts. I think that's important. I think a lot of the other VCs think, well, do I really need to go? How far beyond Kendall Square must I go? You know, all the way to Waltham, perhaps. (laughs) So so I I think that the idea of tapping innovation globally is a, a really important one. And she did go into some of the challenges of starting companies there and growing them there and the way they're going about that. It's interesting also because I um, wrote a story not too long ago about a company that's backed by Polaris and by Arch called Paratus that is doing their R&D both in the United States and in Singapore. And they said one of the reasons that they're in Singapore is because of the quality of the science and also because they're working in uh, emerging infectious diseases. And uh, a lot of the work that has to be done is there. It's close to Singapore and the people are collaborating with scientists in Singapore. So Again, that's really it's it's really interesting, and it kind of backs up what you're saying that it, they're looking at Singapore both as a because of where it is regionally, but also because of the quality of the science that's there. Right, Stephen. We you're absolutely right, and we talked about this just to remind our listeners that is the story where the company working on bats, right? Um, <laughs> so it, it it is a very innovative company. It's what uh, you know they they were lead investor there or co lead investor there, so. You know, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Another thing I talked about with Amy, this won't shock anybody, is the capital markets. And, you know, I, I expressed to her that what we're seeing is a sort of protracted downturn. But at the same time, we're not really seeing people with long faces. Most of them are kind of, there's still quite a high level of energy. People are still sort of trying to work their way through this. She said there is. There's a lot of energy and focus. And she did say to me, look, you know, realistically, 
Don't you think many people, if they were honest, would say to you, this was a correction that was a little bit overdue and some long time coming? So I think we got some sort of tough love from Amy Shulman there that, you know, you kind of had to be prepared for this. There was too much that had gone on. It was it was too easy. And that this is a sort of focus. Uh, She did say, you know, one of the reasons was that you had so many companies going after something. She referred to the egos of VCs and the egos of founders as being part of that. And that there's a consolidation now that is sort of healthy and, and, you know, more of a collaborative spirit. I don't know if that taps in, Stephen, you cover our capital markets and our private markets as well. I, I don't know if that sort of resonates with what you're hearing as well. I think it does. Yeah, no, there's definitely a, um, I'm actually getting the sense that now that we're, not to say that we're past some of the pain, but we're a few steps beyond sort of that initial shock that the bear market was, you know, um, after such a strong sort of run up, you know, from 2020 to 21. On, on reflection now, I'm you know, having a lot of people tell me that they actually are, think this is quite a healthy move for the system. It's a sort of a rebalancing. It's as you say, I think I haven't had people tell me in, in as many words, but it's largely, you know, this was this was coming. This was necessary given the influx of companies in, in particular, you know, in ret- in hindsight, or even in some people's you know, in foresight, saying, you know, a mix of quality of companies that came to the market. And so I think we were due for sort of a consolidation, a contraction of sorts to um, rebalance the system, as it were. Yeah, you, you've used a word that does keep coming up, this word healthy. I, I don't know, of course, if the companies that go under will see this as healthy or a necessary sure. correction. But, uh, it's you definitely know. the 30,000 foot view, not the, uh, not the that, single company view, for sure. That's right. And, you know, what I asked her was that whether the market reset was going to change behaviors when we come out of it, or whether it's actually that technology innovation is just such a driver that it's going to pick up where it left off. And she said those are two quite different questions. She said, what, do people learn? No. People remember it for a while, and then they get forgetful and greedy and excited and exuberant, and it's going to happen all over again. That, that was her answer to that. But she uh, also said that really it's not all irrational exuberance. She said, she said there is really just a lot of really interesting biology and innovation and things worth investing in. And so there really is some substance that is behind this company creation. And so hopefully, you know, we're still able to tap that when the markets open up. Fantastic. Great. Yes. And I've got to finish on one last thing because it was something that's very important to me and very important to Amy Shulman, which is the issue of women in leadership. When I spoke to her, the news wasn't yet there that Deborah Dunsire, who is the CEO of Lundbeck, is stepping down as CEO. And I notched that because that means that there will now only be three women leading pharmaceutical companies or the major pharma companies. But I asked Amy Shulman whether she felt that there was progress or whether we're just sort of, you know, on a hamster wheel of going nowhere and DEI initiatives. And she said that that pulled her in two different directions. She said, you know, on the one hand, of course, there's progress. If you compare it with 10 years ago and 20 years ago, or if we go even further than that in the era that both Amy and I probably grew up in. So, of course, there's a lot of progress since then. But she says it's kind of still disheartening. The numbers don't change. And so we sort of talked a little bit about that and about leadership. And I think I have to point out that there are three companies where Amy Shulman is the chair and there is a different female CEO. 
that's relatively rare. That's relatively rare. And so those companies do actually create environments that make it easier. So, you know, that's a, something that some people may be very interested to hear her comments on. Fantastic. Great. Thanks, Simone. And just a reminder to everyone that uh, Simone's interview with Amy Shulman will be on the BioCentury show that will be available this coming Thursday. So uh, please look out for that. On YouTube. On YouTube. Thanks. Thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> um, moving on uh, to our last topic here of the day, Sarepta's DMD gene therapy, Elevitis, which was approved last week by FDA, uh, has been priced at $3.2 million per dose. Steve, what are some of the implications for reimbursement of this product, especially kind of given the types of insurance a lot of these patients typically have? So one of the things that I found was really interesting when I looked into it is that just about half of the kids who are eligible for DMD therapies in the United States are on Medicaid. That means that $3.2 million, which will be cut down by about 20% because Medicaid gets uh, discounts, is going to fall on the shoulders of Medicaid budgets, state budgets, that are already stretched really thin. The other thing that's interesting is I looked into it a little bit about how how good is Medicaid about paying for gene therapies? There are enough of them out there that you can look at it. And the answer is not so great. They don't tend to cover gene therapies to the label, to the FDA approved label. Uh, they find ways to narrow the labels. If you look at uh, Zolgensma, which is probably the closest analog to Sarepta's gene therapy, there isn't a single state. There was a a study that was done of 16 states and three multi-regional Medicaid organizations, and not a single one of them covered Zolgensma to the FDA label. They all had additional uh, restrictions or narrowed the way that people could get access to it. More concerning, I think, for parents who are eager to get Sarepta's gene therapy is that uh, Medicaid doesn't tend to act quickly, and the appeals processes that Medicaid has in place are slow and cumbersome in most states. The particular challenge with that for, for this therapy is that it's been approved for a narrow window, four-year-old and five-year-olds. Some of the parents, some of the advocates told me, are terrified that their kids are close to the edge, right? They're five years old and they're, they're that they, age out. and that they may age out. by They may apply for, for getting access through Medicaid and then by the time uh, they've gone through whatever appeals or other processes that are in place, they'll be over five and Medicaid may not pay for it. So Pat Furlong, who heads the most prominent uh, DMD patient advocacy organization, called on state Medicaid programs and on CMS to commit that if parents submit applications to get covered under Medicaid when their kid is in the four to five year range, that they should get covered whenever it's gone through the the full coverage decision process, even if that child has aged out of it by then. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. There are other issues around the pricing. Some people believe that there's a great deal of uncertainty about uh, the efficacy here, and they're upset that the company is charging so much for something when they don't believe that the efficacy has been fully proven. And there's another issue, which I think hasn't gotten enough attention, which is that most people who have looked at it carefully, even the ones who are the most enthusiastic about this gene therapy, believe that the efficacy is going to wane. It's not a once and done therapy that's going to last forever. 
these kids are going to need something else either at the same time that they're receiving Sareptis gene therapy or later if the efficacy starts to wane as people expect that's not going to be inexpensive and there's a concern that the advocates have that state medicaid programs or private payers once they've paid something like three million dollars for a gene therapy are going to have much less appetite for continuing to provide care which is going to be very expensive but really critical for the lives of these boys who who are going to as i said are going to continue to need treatments and care for the rest of their lives regardless of what happens probably with the with the Sarepta therapy. Steve, I think this is pretty much, as you pointed out, not on people's radar to even think at the state level and state Medicaid. Is there a precedent for this? What might we know from history? Well, again, I think Zolgensma is probably the, the best one. Zolgensma is a little bit different in that there's no doubt about its efficacy, right? Right. And there's no doubt about how well it works. Um, so would you maybe, would you consider Zolgensma like as good as it gets, like the best case then? For for pediatric gene therapy, yes. But what's interesting about that is that there are, you know, there are alternatives to Zolgensma that are getting covered. And there are also treatments in addition to Zolgensma. So uh, patients are getting Zolgensma plus other SMA treatments um, in combination. It's extraordinarily expensive. It's extraordinarily effective, though. and the effects are immediately obvious to everyone. One of the things that's that's interesting about the DMD gene therapies is that it's much more problematic to come up with a an algorithm for an outcomes-based uh, approach to paying for it. And um, Sarepta said that they're not going to even try for this narrow four to five-year-old indication. So that means that payers are going to be stuck with a uh, you know, with taking this this risk, it's possible that they'll come up with something else. For example, they may come up with ways to spread the payment out over a few years. That would be a smart thing for them to do, especially for Medicaid programs. Yeah, it's difficult because, as you say, in SMA, at least there are other options available. Whereas for for the majority of these DMD patients, there's nothing for them right now, and so this really is their only option for most of them. Yeah, there there are other therapies, um, the exon skipping therapies, but there's a great deal of controversy about them as to whether they work. And, and if they, they only cover work, a small portion of the of the patient population. It's a small portion of the patient population. It's not. Um, it's still not clear whether they work or how well they work. In part because Sarepta hasn't finished the confirmatory trials that would be needed to to provide those answers. Very interesting. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you all for listening. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>